Let's pray. Our Lord God, Phyllis this morning said another day in the neighborhood. And that's a good thought as we convene together to study your word and, and the meaning of what was said so long ago for us even today. We ask you to bless us, bless our teacher today, and may our thoughts focus upon you and the ways in which we can know and serve you better. And when we leave here, we will say praise God. Amen. There we go. How's everyone doing today? Good to see you all again. All right, so you may be wondering why, you know, I did the Gospels last week and all of a sudden I'm doing a couple of letters and I'm not doing something obvious like going to Paul or Acts. And the reason is because in terms of literary studies, I thought this was kind of the most interesting stuff. <laughs> all right. And it's interesting for me because I'm schooled in um, what they call the art of rhetoric. And I know it's misused a lot now, particularly two ways that it's used really, really tick me off. And one is that it's a rhetorical question, which means a question that you ask not expecting an answer. Like, how many of you have done, you have smoked marijuana? Well, I really wouldn't want you to reveal that to the whole crowd. <laughs> so, that's a rhetorical question, yes? Of course, some of my students don't get that. And they'll answer, oh, I haven't. Well, okay, thanks, but I didn't really want an answer. But rhetorical question is just the use of the word rhetoric, and it's, it's like equating one word in the dictionary with the meaning of the whole dictionary. That was a bad analogy, but you get what I mean. The other is that they'll say, well, it's just rhetoric. Yes, somebody's argument is just rhetoric. And that really kills me because what did they just use to say that? Rhetoric. <laughs> yes? One of the oldest tricks in the book is to say that I'm against rhetoric. Well, you just use rhetoric to say that. Because if you're being persuasive, then you're using rhetoric. Plato made some of the best arguments against rhetoric, but they're all highly rhetorical. Yes? And if you believe him, then he's double fooled you. At least Aristotle, the one that I figure I, that I follow, Aristotle was honest about it, and he said the realm of rhetoric is the realm of the debatable, which is larger than it used to be. In his time, he considered scientific things facts, and metaphysical things that we would call spiritual things he considered facts, and he only considered the realm of legal uh, and political speeches and things like that, politics. That's all rhetoric, the realm of rhetoric. Now, what a lot of people don't know today is that every Greek person, and in fact, this is what Alexander said in motion, that if you lived in a Greek-inhabited, in, a, a Greek-ruled area, then all the citizens would have been trained, or the opportunity, at least the rich and the property, would have the opportunity to train in a Greek school. They didn't consider the other schools to be very valid. Um, so all of the New Testament, just, all, just about all of the New Testament figures who wrote the books were obviously trained in Greek schools because their Greek is so good. Mark would be an exception. He has very common Greek. But Luke has sophisticated Greek. John has very sophisticated Greek. So they were well trained. Because of that, because they're trained in Greek schools, they were trained in, guess what? Rhetoric. Now, Aristotle said rhetoric is finding and using the best means of persuasion. Yes? I don't know why the, oh yeah, I haven't plugged that in. Thanks for letting me know that, because I would have just been talking away. And it's this simple. It should go bloop. There's nothing to see anyway. 
Nothing to see, move on. No, I'm kidding. That's one of my favorite lines in cop movies. You know what I'm saying? Cop movies all have the same stupid lines in them. All right, you're off the case. Nothing to see here, move on. Okay, anyway. That's rhetoric, too. It's, uh, rhetoric uh, is using, so if it's finding and using the best available means of persuasion, Aristotle believed that the best way to do it is to figure out what you believe and put what I want in your terms. Yes? Because if I argue on my terms, like teenagers do, we always lose. I tell my students, you know, that teenagers haven't learned anything about rhetoric because they argue this. I'm going to the party. Why do you want to go to the party? Because all my friends will be there. That's not the way adults think, is it? And, of course, adults have the classic answer to that. Classic rhetorical answer to that is, if all your friends jump off a cliff or bridge, I hear different versions, would you too? And, of course, the kid is like, yeah, I would, but that's a different matter. (laughs) But if the kid argued something like this, you tell me that you want me to take more responsibility, so I will make a deal with you. I will go to this party, and I will be home at this hour, and I will be sober. Would the parent be more likely? Yes, of course. So what I'm interested in is that to look at these pieces as pieces of writing, letters from individuals to individual audiences, and how they are trying to do that, how they're trying to figure out what the audience believes and bridge that, and bring them to what they want them to believe. So I'm looking at these as rhetorical documents. So there we go. They're for specific, by a specific person for a specific audience at a specific point in time. And again, it doesn't matter too much to literary scholars whether the person attributed to it is the person who wrote it. They're just concerned that it was there and it was used and it was put into the canon, so therefore it's important. So Aristotle called it the best, finding the best available means of persuasion. And Greek education included natural science, rhetoric, geometry, sophistry, astronomy, and meteorology. Now, me being trained in rhetoric, we're a little miffed that rhetoric was taken off the agenda um, about 18th and 19th century. But up to that time, anybody, anywhere that was educated was educated in rhetoric. So it was kind of a great loss. And I think we're still feeling the loss when I see not very many great rhetoricians these days. Is anybody surprised because the training is not there? Now, some people get it otherwise. If you go to law school, you get some. All right, so let's look at First Peter. Um, scholars doubt the traditional authorship of the Apostle Peter because it has excellent Greek style, which isn't to be expected because what did Peter do for a living? He was a fisherman. He wouldn't have been educated. <coughs> and as it tells us in Matthew and in Acts that that's what he was. It also uh, almost quotes some of the letters of Paul. So some people say, well, why would Peter quote Paul? But there could be a reason, and this is one of the theories, that Silvanus, who traveled with Paul, also was the one who wrote the book down at the dictation of Peter. So he would have embellished it in a way and also, Silvanus clearly has a Greek name. All right, we know it's written from Rome, and so how do we know these kind of things? Because they practically tell you. She who was at Babylon, who was likewise chosen. He's writing from, quote, Babylon, and what was the code word in the, at that time for Rome? Babylon. Why did you not put that in a letter? That you're writing from Rome. They might be upset, especially given the next part. He writes after the outbreak of the Neronian persecution in 64. Yes, that's Nero. (laughs) All right, so in all of this, Peter says, well, the writer of Peter says, in all this, uh, the eternal Christian inheritance, you rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. So he's writing from Babylon, from Rome, in a time of trial. And so since it's a time of trial, a time of persecution, you don't want to put Rome on there. Yes, you don't want to give out where you are. He does give out where they are. (laughs) But he doesn't give out where he is. 
Prior to Nero's accusation of arson and subsequent persecution of Christians in 64, all animosity was apparently limited to intramural Jewish hostility. And we learn in Acts that Aquila and Priscilla left Rome. Does anybody know why they left Rome? They were kicked out. All the Jews were kicked out of Rome. So all these things help us place the date. But Christians weren't persecuted specifically until Nero. Now, we also don't, uh, a lot of us think persecution lasted a lot, that it was more thorough and it was lasted longer than it did. Um, here's how we say, this is the evidence that we have for Neronian persecution. And we know that Nero did persecute Christians. What is said here is debated. Therefore, to stop the rumor that he had set Rome on fire, Emperor Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished with the most fearful tortures the persons commonly called Christians, who were generally hated for their enormities. Now, this is by the Roman historian Tacitus, and it was published some years after the event. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, procurator of, Jesus, of Judea. Now, what gets, of course, Christian scholars excited is this. This is the first mention of Christianity or Jesus anywhere but in the Bible. Procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, and it places it in the same time period the New Testament places itself. But the pernicious superstition, repressed for a time, broke out yet again. You can see pernicious superstition, what his attitude is, even though he doesn't seem to favor later persecution. Um, where was I? Repressed for a time, broke out yet again, not only through Judea, where the mischief, mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, whither all things horrible and disgraceful flow from all quarters. <laughs> I think that's L.A. today. And as a common receptacle, I wrote a thing in, when I was in college, some little sarcastic little poem I wrote. I said, at one time God picked up the United States and everything loose fell off and went to California. <laughs> no, it was not a good book. I wrote a book when I was 20, and I'm glad I didn't publish it. Uh, I didn't realize the Jews were kicked out of Rome at the same time. Yes, they were. They were kicked out for other reasons. They were rabble-rousing, and um, they were rioting for various reasons. So... Their relationship to Rome was of kind of veiled tolerance. Like we recognize, it, it was a recognized religion, so you couldn't be persecuted for being a Jew as long as you behaved yourself. And they didn't. They caused some riots uh, because they, of you know what we would call today rights violations, those sort of things, and you know uneven. They would be taxed differently and those sort of things. So they had kind of caused some trouble for themselves, and it's the same trouble that they caused later that gets them completely destroyed only a few years later in Jerusalem. They don't want to be ruled by Rome. All right, so there's the city of Rome. Accordingly, first those were arrested who confessed they were Christians. Next, on their information, boy, this sounds all too familiar. These things happen periodically that other people confess other people, out other people, so to speak. Vast multitudes were convicted not so much on the charge of burning the city as hating the human race. Their very deaths, they were made subject to sport, for they were covered with hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs, nailed to crosses or set fire to, and when the day waned, burned to serve the evening lights. Nero offered his own garden players for the spectacle and exhibited Cerician games, just indiscriminately mingling with the common people in the dress of a charioteer or else standing in front of a chariot. For this cause, a feeling of compassion arose toward the sufferers, though guilty and deserving of exemplary capital punishment, because they seemed not to be cut off from for the public good, but were victims of the ferocity of one man. So notice that the account is not sympathetic to Christianity and even says that they should be killed, but he didn't like the way that it was done. He didn't feel like the crowds at least appreciated it. All right. The trouble, is, well, the positive thing about this is it contains the, an early non-Christian reference to the origin of Christianity, the execution of Christ, including Pontius Pilate, which it... it Pilate's Pilate's records don't indicate it at all. And the presence and persecution of Christians in first century Rome. 
While a majority of scholars consider the passage authentic, some have doubted. The reason they doubt is because early Christian writers, you'd think, would have quoted Tacitus. Yes, this is evidence for our faith, and they don't. Um, Tertian, T- I mean, Tertullian, Lactanius, Sepulchus, Severus, Eusebius, and Augustine of Hippo. So at least Tertullian and Augustine of Hippo are considered serious founding fathers. Do not refer to Tacitus when discussing the subject of persecution by Nero. They say that the persecution happened, but they don't discuss his quote. And Suetonius mentions Christians being harmed, but no connection to the fire. So there is some doubt on that, but it is definitely a powerful package and uh, passage. And even without that, we know that Nero persecuted Christians. All right. While we're at it, I thought it would be interesting to see what's the uh, uh, an early reference to Christianity. Um, but this younger Ananas, who, as we have told you already, took the high priesthood, was a bold man in his temper and very insolent. He was also of the sect of the Sadducees, who are very rigid in judging offenders, above all the rest of the Jews, as we have already observed. So this is a Jewish historian writing. When, therefore, Ananas was of this disposition, he thought he had now a proper opportunity. Festus was now dead, Albanus was... Uh, was but upon the road, so he assembled the Sanhedrin of judges, brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, whose name was James. And this is mentioned in Acts. And some others. And when he had formed accusation against them as breakers of the law, he delivered them to be stoned. But as for those who seemed the most equitable of the citizens, and such were the most uneasy of the breach of the laws, they disliked what was done. Okay, again, so there's some persecution. So what do we know about persecution in the context that would give context to this book. Now, I don't know about you, but I was taught that the persecution was, uh, you know, took place in the in the arenas, and that a lot it was due to the emperors. And there were a few emperors that did, but for over two hundred years there weren't any, uh, except for Nero. So, although it's often claimed that Christians were persecuted for their refusal to worship the emperor, generous like Christians arose from the refusal to worship the gods and take part in sacrifice. You have to know something about Roman culture. That to be a Roman didn't just mean, hey, I'm a Roman. It meant you kept, well, we would see a similarity to today. If someone said, well, I'm a Christian, and you said, well, where do you go to church? Well, I don't. And do you go to Christmas? No. <laughs> do you celebrate Easter? <laughs> no. <laughs> People would be like, well, then what in the world, you know, how, do you, why are, you, how are you marking yourself? So, to be a Roman meant that you had certain attitudes and certain legal uh, advantages, but it also meant that you kept, you did what Romans did, right? And so since they didn't do that, they were suspect. And it was more important in their culture than we would think. In the kind of tolerant culture today, people don't care whether you go to church or not. But the Romans, to the Romans, um, foundation of society was obedience to the father, obedience to the emperor, and keeping the Roman holidays, the Roman customs, and Roman festivals. That's what made you a Roman. So an attack on that is an attack basically on the family, the structure, etc. So persecution continued intermittently over a period of about three centuries until 313, the Edict of Milan, when Christianity was legalized, and it wasn't too long before it was proclaimed the official religion of Rome. So from Nero until Decius in 250, the persecution of Christians was Romans was limited to isolated local incidents. So that makes sense in terms of 1 Peter because he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, which is not in Rome. And it kind of explains that such persecutions happen on the whim of the local procurators. Does that make sense? Um, you could also question, well, how do the ro- local procurators have the right to do this if the emperor had not put any edicts out and basically it was so long to communicate with Rome that they just made decisions in the field and that's why they were hired you're irresponsible if you do something stupid (laughs) we'll bring you back in or put you someplace like Judea like they did Pontius Pilate he was incompetent so in elsewhere so they sent him to Judea it's sort of a punishment yeah Or you will make some 
Yes. Well, we have to have some independence out there. And um, basically, well, it's the same thing we do when we elect people. We, we entrust them that they're going to make decisions according to what we desire. We don't all the time, probably not, but at least we're entrusting them to make decisions, and that's what these procurators were supposed to do. And, of course, they knew that Rome didn't really like Christianity, so um, these persecutions would happen in isolated places. So Christianity became the state religion of the Roman Empire in 380, but persecution to Christians went on because it went now to, being, to heretics. Then it became a time of who's right and who's wrong. And as I told you before, there was a lot of hostility toward anyone who had, in, had given up others or had you know, left the faith and then come back when it was safer. There's a lot of hostility towards those individuals. All right, so there we go. That was a little background. So the Christians in Asia Minor are undergoing persecution of some sort. And he's writing to Gentile converts. So this goes along with in another reason why this considered being written by Peter. Traditionally, as really, if you, see, if you look at Acts and the letters of Paul, it's only um, Peter and Paul that become really, really dedicated to reaching Gentiles. Peter, because he has a vision, it tells him to go to the Gentiles, and they get into arguments in Acts. And there's some disagreement between Paul and the letters of Acts, but uh, uh, I mean, in, of Acts, but that's another story. All right, so he tells them, you're being persecuted, so what does that mean? How do you interpret that? And he gives them, um, one of the things I'm interested in rhetoric is one of the oldest persuasive techniques in the world is three, the rule of three. My students will say, how many sources should I have? And I'll say, at least three. It's the whole idea, and then uh, in Proverbs it says a three-fold cord is not easily broken. Yes, I, I tell them it's like, uh, when do you have a chair? <laughs> if it has one leg, you've got a stool, but it's really, you have to put it into the floor. And if you have two, it'll just fall right over, but when you have three, you have a chair. <coughs> so, it's called the rule of three. It's also the reason why there's three little pigs, and... <laughs> How many bears? Three. three bears. And even if they're, they're the three feathers, there's all kinds of fairy tales built on the rule of three. So he uses kind of a rule of three. What are three reasons? I, I, I doubt he thought about it, but I think we automatically do it when we're trying to support ideas. And we have that sense that I didn't say a third one. I need to say a third one. Uh, so, th though enduring suffering, they demonstrate the genuineness of their faith. So, suffering, it, as we all know, I was told an analogy a long time ago. Uh, if you have a vat of acid and a vat of honey, what's the best way to figure out what's in it? Or at least a way. Kick it. If it burns you, <laughs> it's honey. <laughs> I mean, if it burns you, it's acid. <laughs> now, it's a stupid way to find out, but the analogy was supposed to say that if you want to find out someone's character, what's the best way? Give them a kick, yeah. If life gives them a kick, and then you find out. Yes, the world's nicest person turns really mean sometimes given the big kick. And so he's trying to say, you've been kicked and now we'll know. Yes, are you, are you really a believer? All right. They are also participating in the sufferings of Christ, which he is establishing, and I think one of the things that's kind of unique to Peter's argument and one of the things that I wanted to say today is what these letters say become kind of the handbook of Christianity, of Christian history. So that if they'd have said something different, we'd have a different history. But he has this idea that, that um, Christ's sufferings weren't over on the cross and that anyone who participates in union with Christ is going to continue that suffering, that the relationship of, um, he doesn't use the phrase the world, but John uses the phrase the world, the relationship of the outer culture to Christian culture is going to be one of animosity. <coughs> and then also this happy little point like misery loves company, <laughs> that you are one with any Christian suffering anywhere. And somehow that does give us hope, doesn't it? If we know we're not alone, that we're not the only ones suffering. 
All right, so these are all good rhetorical arguments, and they tap into general things that we believe. You know, kick a vat of acid, and you'll find out what's in it. Um, uh, participating in the sufferings of Christ, we can kind of understand what that would mean, and that it could explain what's happening. And then uh, one with other people, that's sort of a general truth, isn't it? That if you're one with anybody, I don't know how many times in my life I thought it was absolutely unique, and I like that about myself, but sometimes it feels lonely. And so when you meet someone else that looks at something a similar way, you feel kind of relieved, like, oh, well, I'm not insane. There's at least two of us. <laughs> so he's tapping into that common knowledge and he's making, he's interpreting it at a Christian level. Does that make sense? Common rhetorical device. No one wants to feel alone. Uh, people want to feel a part of something. People want to feel like uh, what they do is important and valued, and he's tapping into all of that. All right. But even if you should suffer for doing right, you are blessed. That sounds a whole lot like Sermon on the Mount, doesn't it? And it's not the way I feel when I suffer. <laughs> you? <laughs> like, yay! <laughs> Suffering, oh boy. I don't think anybody makes that equation. But he's making that equation. Always be prepared to give an answer for everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ might be ashamed of your slander. Now, he's going to take this a direction, though, that I think, in a way, sets the church back. And Paul does it as well. Their idea is this. And we'll see that he says this outright. If you're going to be persecuted, then don't be doing anything stupid. Yes? If you're breaking some other kind of law, then that's just going to give them reasons to attack Christians. Yes? So you should pay your taxes, etc. You should do everything you can. Jesus says a similar thing, right? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's, which is a nice little play on image of God. Yes? Whatever's made in the image of God, give to God. Whatever's in the image of Caesar, give to Caesar. Um, but on the other hand, they had a chance here to be to rebel against society. Yes, and they kind of don't because of the persecution. Does that make any sense? Society could have been overturned. So you read in Paul where he says, "In Christ there is no Jew or Greek, no male or female." Right? He's no slave or free. Now, that was powerful, and that could have changed culture as it was, but Paul and Peter, in other occasions, kind of back off, saying we can't really cause that kind of trouble. Um, I saw something, or I heard something similar on the radio. They were interviewing an Egyptian woman about the election. They said, are you concerned that uh, nothing's really happening in terms of women's rights in Egypt? And she's like one battle at a time. <laughs> Let's get democracy in place. <laughs> they take a similar view. So it makes sense on one level. On another level, I'm saddened because it leads, it keeps things unchallenged that I think could have been challenged. The rights of women and slaves. It was all there. It was planted. But wow, it takes a couple of thousand years before anybody pays attention to those passages and sees the implication of them. They're outnumbered. Yeah, and unfortunately, because the president has said here, when they do get power in Rome, they don't use it. Women are uh, highly oppressed by the early church, and so they don't really take this opportunity. And they don't challenge slavery particularly. You wish, but by this time, it's already kind of gone the way that these letters go. Okay. In a second, I'll give you some evidence for that. All right, so in terms of his rhetoric, one way to, uh, to be rhetorical is to quote sources, isn't it? Quote authorities. So it's interesting to see how much the writers quote. I'm going to contrast this with 1 John, hopefully if there's time, to show that he, he does not quote the Old Testament very much, whereas Peter relies on it pretty heavily. He makes six references to Isaiah, two to Psalms, and two to Proverbs, and it's interesting what they quote. He's not quoting from the Torah or, you know, um, 
mostly Isaiah. <coughs> so his use of the Old Testament too, how does he use it rhetorically? He sees it as a prophetic message pointing to the Christ and to the Christian church. He also uses, as we've looked at, the, the Greek method of argument, which is to say that things are analogies. This was invented really by the Greeks because they had begun to not so much believe in their own gods. Does that make any sense? They began, because when you think about Greek philosophy and the influence of kind of secular thinking, a lot of thinkers became cynical. In fact, the word cynic comes from the Greeks. It means to be as a dog. Did you know that? <laughs> the cynics believed life made so little sense that it was better to just be a dog, and they would bark at people at the gate to kind of prove their point. But skepticism, cynicism are, are Greek words, and so growing movements of these affected society and their view of the gods. And so they began to see the gods as kind of allegorical, not so much what did Zeus do or what did Hera do, but uh, what do these stories teach us about human beings and who we are. And the same thing happens uh, through Philo, uh, the Jewish teacher, to the Jewish culture, and also Christians go crazy with this idea to where analogical interpretation becomes almost the only way to interpret um, it's, real, it's one among four that we're familiar with today. Um, but he uses the analogy of trial by fire. What, when you put things through a fire, what does that do? Yes. Um, he uses the analogy that we are obedient children, that we're living stones built into a spiritual house, and that the leaders are the shepherds of the flock. And of course, these aren't new images, but they're ones picked up on the, on the Christian church. All right, the principle of the whole letter, though, is kind of bound up in 2.13, or at least looking at it as a literary document, a persuasive document. Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake for every human authority. Remember why he said that? Because you're being persecuted. Stay in line. All right, so he tells us to submit to the emperor and the governors. He tells slaves to submit to their masters and wives to their husbands. So it's always good to at least look at these letters in, in, from a rhetorical standpoint um, and a literary standpoint. It's all right to debate these issues later because these were written for a specific time and place. What if the time and place changes? Should we go back and reinterpret what he's saying? That's what a lot of people in the church have decided to ask. Particularly because slaves to masters, no one believes holds anymore, so why should the other one? Wives to husbands, but that opens up a different can of worms, doesn't it? <laughs> but you hardly ever see that line in the, in the wedding ceremony anymore. <laughs> Things have changed. All right. And of course, that's the question of the church in, anyway, isn't it? Uh, that these were documents written to a specific time and place. Should we, there's two schools of thought. They apply for all time, to all situations, or is it that we should rethink some of the, some of the doctrines within our own time and space? And that's what happens. All right, so his summary message, still all related to your suffering, be obedient, is you know, to be holy, to be patient at suffering, set a good example, you know, be a good citizen. And if you suffer, make sure it's for being righteous, not a sinner. All right, this is a silly analogy, but I, I can't help but think, my father always taught me, you know, if you're ever stopped by the police or anything happens, you encounter the police in any way, just do anything they tell you to do. <laughs> just do that. And so my very first car accident, I hit a police officer. <laughs> he was off duty, and he had backed in front of me from the wrong side of the street. So he was in the wrong, but I was also speeding, which I was 17. I didn't get my license until I was 17 because I was that rebellious. And I ended up, my car ended up, funny enough, in his yard. I tore his yard to pieces trying to stop my car. But anyway, the outcome of it all, and I was terrified when he had stripe, the stripe on his pants when he got out of his car. <laughs> 
man. And he didn't want me to call the police. I didn't understand that at the time. <laughs> and then when the other police officer shows up, he's like, hello, Bob. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm doomed. <laughs> so you never feel as young as that moment, right? Just, oh, my gosh. I thought it was pretty good stuff until I'm standing in that context. <laughs> the father shows up, and I told them, you know, I was... They said, well, how fast were you going? And I said, well, I was going probably 38, almost 40 miles an hour, somewhere in there. And they looked at me like, and he even said, are you sure you want to say that? <laughs> I said, yes. Now, guess who won the case? Me, and why? Because the same reason, right? I was honest. And it counted to me under righteousness, I guess. <laughs> and they're like, <laughs> they're like, well, you might have lost because he was a police officer. But because you came across as just being otherwise a very honest person, then it didn't come down on me. And I think he's using the same kind of logic. If you've done nothing else wrong, and (laughs) the only thing you've done wrong is be a Christian, hopefully that isn't enough to get people mad at us. All right, so set a good example. If you suffer, make sure it's for being righteous and not a sinner. (laughs) All right, so 1 John... The reason I wanted to look at it in this context is because rhetorically it's absolutely a different document than 1 Peter. All right. One of the things that you notice immediately about 1 John is all the other letters that we've collected begin with a salutation. Yes, this is Paul or whoever is beginning the letter from James to, and this has no salutation whatsoever. So, in a sense, it's not really a letter or even an epistle in, in the strictest sense. The author is called only the elder, so we don't know if it's the John of the Gospel of John or not. But similarities in vocabulary, literary style, and theology imply it's the same pen. So, some people theorize, and I think probably it was, uh, it was a companion piece with the Gospel. Maybe traveled around with it. It was written toward the end of the first century like the Gospel of John was. All right. So his purpose is to deepen the spiritual life of the readers, and he's not writing to those being persecuted. As we talked about last time, John is writing at a time where uh, Christians have been taken out of the synagogues, and Christianity and Judaism have split. So he comes from that perspective, but it isn't a time of persecution. And he's battling the belief that God had not really become a man in Jesus. Remember the belief that that follow hell was that the word was the way that God dealt with the material world, right? God could not have anything to do with the material world. But through the word, he could make, create the world. Yes, and we're created through that process. Um, And John, even though he agrees with the idea of the word as, as being Jesus, the Christ, at the same time, he believes, he doesn't believe that there isn't this untouchable relationship, that God could become human. And also, one of the first beliefs that happens in Christianity is that what you do in the body doesn't matter, that if your soul is saved, do what you want with your body. And Paul battles this. It's one of the earliest battles of Christianity. Now, he also is writing to reestablish the commandments of Jesus, but he believes there's only two. And what are they? (laughs) Two. Believe that Jesus is the Christ and to love one another. There's a tradition that says that John's last sermon was little children love one another, and he sat down. That was the end of his sermon. (laughs) Which makes sense in light of this letter that that would be all he would have to say. All right. But 1 John, even more than Peter, uses Aristotelian logic. There's two rules of Greek logic that all educated Greek people would have known. And they're so embedded in our society, we're not even taught it anymore. We just believe it. Everything must be either A or not A, meaning something has to be what it is or not that. 
<laughs> yes, so you know, you're either Bob or you're not Bob, but you can't be like not, you know, halfway Bob. And a fish is either a fish or not a fish, but it has to be. And of course, he's setting these rules up as the rules of logic of how we decide whether something is a chicken or a fish. And of course, platypus is confusing. They're still making up their mind exactly what that is. He came up with another law that made it an even tougher restriction called the law of the excluded middle. Nothing can be both A and not A. Are you seeing how that excludes the middle? Has to be one or the other, and it can't be both something and something else. Yes? Now, it, this isn't the only way to look at things. And of course, uh, in modern philosophy, they're rebelling against this, but it's been rebelled against for a long time in the sense that life is more a matter of degree. For instance, we could say some activities are masculine and some are feminine, but if you look at me as an individual, I'd like some feminine activities and some masculine activities. So that, does, that means, am I masculine or am I feminine? Uh, <laughs> do I have to be one or the other? I'm a platypus. Yes, so I like to shop. <laughs> yeah, the hair. So, you know, but on the whole, it's, it's been confusing in my life, too, because, you know, I considered, like, I don't like sports and I don't really care, and people talk about them, and I just go to sleep. My parents, my family loves it. My mother would try to, you know, ask me to go to games, and I'd say, can I take a book? She goes, that's just too embarrassing. <laughs> like, all I hear is squeaking shoes. I don't even care who wins. <laughs> all right, but we get the point. There are other ways to look at things. But there isn't in John's mind. This writer, it, whereas Peter, I think, might leave a little room for us to be somewhere in between. In his letter, he does kind of side with you're either a Christian or not, but, and you're either going to make it or not, and your faith is going to withstand or not. But John goes even more that direction. So, for example, he says, he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness. There is no middle road there. Yes? There isn't like, well, if you... And of course, we always want to look for middle road, don't we? Well, what if I just think hateful thoughts? <laughs> what if I just was a little mean? But what does he say? No. He very much follows Aristotelian logic. No one who abides in Christ. No one! That's Aristotelian to the max, because Aristotelian uh, syllogisms are based on all or none, right? You're either all or none. It allows some but it's still like some has to be all some. <laughs> there can't be any all to it. <laughs> all right. But John doesn't even allow that, does he? No one who abides in Christ sins. No one who sins has either seen him or known him. Yes? This is really high water mark, isn't it? And very Aristotelian. In fact, very uncomfortable to read, isn't it? If you take that seriously, all of us are in trouble. All right, he also uses a Greek method called given this, then that propositions. The first statement's affirmed as true, and in given this, then that, you're just given this. No one establishes it, yes? So if I said something like, Americans are very independent, I'm not going to, and I make an argument based on that, then I just assume that we all agree that that was true, Yes? So, the first statement is affirmed as true rather than proven, and then the other statement is built on it logically. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Okay, so, establishes that as, as the assumption. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, if then we lie and do not live according to the truth. Very much a Greek method of arguing. And it's, of course become embedded in our society so much it's, an, it's considered a normal way of arguing. He also uses a, another um, method, probably worldwide method, of oppositions, binaries. It's interesting in a lot of Eastern cultures, binaries were considered things to be disassembled. They were interested in the space between binaries. Yes, if you know Taoism, the symbol of Taoism is the 
the two little fish, and there's a little bit of dark in the light, and a little bit of light in the dark. So in a lot of Eastern cultures, binaries are considered illusions. But the way it followed, and, and I'm not so sure that Aristotle didn't believe that himself, but the method of logic he set up was very oppositional. So he bases it on, if you're in the light, then there is no darkness in you. If you, you either live by the truth or you're a liar. You either live for God or the devil. You either, I think I had them all positive on one side and negative on the other, except for this one. <laughs> all right, so you're either in love or you live in hate. You either follow Christ or you follow the Antichrist. And you're either a believer or you're in the world. So it's a very, very black and white rhetorical method. Interesting, he only cites scripture once in the whole thing, and he uses it allegorically, another Greek method. Cain and Abel are the world-hating Christians. So just as the one brother hated the other, so the world will hate you. Uh, he reinterprets the commandments as to believe and to love. And he also uses <coughs> the rule of three. And he does it very, very purposely. He says there's three witnesses. Well, those I don't have written out. So we can take a look. If you can find First John toward the back. Three witnesses are the spirit and the water and the blood. These three agree. Also in the gospel it talks about um, Jesus on the cross and the water of blood coming from his side. He also says we know in 18 through 20. Notice that he's using this method right toward the end, which is a normal way to use that. Uh, okay, maybe it is in 18 through 5, 18 through 20. Rats. That's not the verse I needed. All right. But he also talks about his audience as being children, fathers, and young men. The three, and that's Aristotle's classic distinction of the three ages of men, three ages of humans. Sorry, I'll find that other one <laughs> and get it right. He also uses uh, a method of argument called asorites. I always want to call it asorites, but then... If you want to call Socrates Socrates, then that would make sense. But it's Asorites, or Sorites, they would probably say. Um, in Asorites, you actually have a, a link of four different propositions that all relate to each other. Let me go back and show you what one looks like, and it's easier. Okay, so it is raining. If we go out while it's raining, we will get wet. If we get wet, we will get cold. Therefore... If we go out, we will get wet and cold. All right. So here's where he uses it. There's no fear in love, but perfect love draws out fear because fear has to do with punishment. You see how one goes to the other, to the other, and then finally to a conclusion. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Okay. They don't all add up perfectly, but they're very much Sorites methods and that they're one claim, one claim, one claim, and they all lead to each other, and then the conclusion sort of sums up all of the claims. All right, so he uses that when he talks about knowing and believing, abiding, when God is love. So he, in each one of these verses, he makes a statement about abiding, confessing, knowing and believing, then God is love goes back to abide. Uh, perfection and love in the world, then love, you cannot love and fear at the same time. We love because we're loved, seen and unseen. Um, you have about that if you don't love your brothers, you don't love God. So all the way through the book, very strict. Yes, there's no middle ground. You don't love your brothers, you don't love God. And loving others is a proof of love of God. All right. So a summary of John. <coughs> First John has almost no structure. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, in fact, if you understand that he uses uh, Greek arguments and Sorites, you see that that's the structure. He uses these just kind of plugged into each other. And of course, you can build a Sorites on another Sorites. 
Yes, we could take the rain cold thing and end up making another argument about rain and cold. And that's the kind of thing that he does. So it is very much a Greek document. All right, the themes are related to certain assumed principles of statements of fact. He states them as fact so that there is no question in the audience. You could question it, but it's hard to question something stated as fact. And the main message, messages of the book is to trust in the spirit to know the true from false teaching. And of course, there is only true and only false teaching to abide on what has been taught, to resist the temptations of the world, and to follow the law of love. So he uses all these little sorties and, and various um, enthematic and other kind of arguments that I talked about last time. All right. So what I'm trying to say today is that the authors of the Christian epistles use rhetorical and literary methods to reach their audiences. Mostly, I looked at today rhetorical. The early New Testament writers relied variously on Jewish scriptures. We saw that John relied almost not at all on Jewish scriptures, where Peter relied pretty heavily. And of course, why didn't they rely on New Testament scriptures? It hadn't been written down yet. And uh, if, it, if it was, they might not have seen them. Now, we're sure, of course, that uh, the Gospel of Mark, the earliest Gospel, did, use, did have sources. Um, so there were things, separate things, sayings and oral teachings kind of going around. It was the, the Gospel writers that collected them and were influenced by each other. And as you remember, Peter was influenced by the letter of Peter, First Peter, was influenced by Paul. He, he quotes Paul. So we know that some of the letters of Paul are floating about by the time we get to Peter. All right. But when they use Jewish scriptures, they're almost always interpreted allegorically, which follow the teachings of philosophers like Philo of Alexandria. And Philo was responsible, of course, for the idea of the logos, Right? as the word of God. So, highly influential teacher. All right. Let me read the last point. All right, so these letters in particular affect the Christian concepts of obedience, which I talked about, um, that obedience to the state was a way to keep out of trouble so that Christians wouldn't be persecuted. And um, the other obediences, slaves to masters and wives to husbands were included in that. So behavior in the body, how we behave in our bodies and what kind of activities we do. The nature of the commandments, which John isolates to, three, to uh, two. Um, allegory interpretation and the divinity of Christ. So the choices they made in these letters because they become a part of the canon, become a part of the church and part of the doctrine of the church for good and for bad. So of course a lot of it was for good of the church and some of it I wish they'd have questioned more and challenged more at the time, but of course, history is what it is. All right. Well, I, what fascinates me, I never realized Philo was, in as a matter of dates, so closely uh, aligned with the dates of, of the early church fathers and mothers, I'm sure, but um, which kind of leads me to, to believe that Peter, John, Paul really were kind of the scholars we like to think they are. Yes. In other words, they're right up with current rhetorical styles or thinking, <laughs> well, however you want to. That'd be another way it. to look at it. Yes, they're up on the styles. And uh, they're up on follow. That he apparently was highly influential in a very quick period because he was only born barely in the BCE and then yeah. lived into the Christian era, the early Christian era. Um, so they're up on their Aristotle, but they're also up on their follow. I wonder if his name would have been flung around like we do now. Have you read Philo? You know, <laughs> I got this scroll at home. <laughs> Again, though, where would we be without Greek culture? Greek, one of the things the Greeks did was establish libraries in all of these places. So scholarly work is accessible, but especially in Egypt, this, the Library of Alexander, which later was burned down by Christians. But that's a different matter. When, when that's I a was horrifying a, little footnote. 
from a long years ago when I was a kid, I learned about Josephus and his writings. Yeah. And it was, it was used in the context by Sunday school teachers or whatever about the authenticity of Jesus, that here was this secular Jewish historian who was writing about Jesus, and it yes. wasn't just the Bible making the claim. Yes. Now, is what, what evidence is there that Josephus had, did he cite Paul? Did he have no. exposure to any of Paul's writings? Do we know any of that? No. And um, the one thing that makes it suspect is that idea that I talked about of witnesses differing, that he seems to be mirroring a source rather than something he's saying. Remember when I read it, how it sounded almost gospel-y? Am I making any sense? Um, okay. Now, this is Josephus, brother who was called the Christ. Um, let me back off. I was talking about Tacitus. Tacitus is questioned for those reasons. And Josephus, though, is, is just mentioning this one little thing. Now, as to what else he mentioned, I, I'm not quite sure. Um, and even this, this is a very debatable point in the Catholic Church, which still to this day says that Jesus didn't have any brothers or sisters, that Mary remained a virgin, and that what they call brothers are his cousins. Yeah, and so even then we got debate, even when he says this. So this is verified elsewhere, yes. But Tacitus is the one that confirms stuff about the crucifixion. That would be this one. Mm -hmm. And like I said, this doesn't seem like so much. Some of it seems like he's writing it and some of he's using a source. Do you see the difference? Where he'll go like, persons commonly called Christians who were generally hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of that name, was put to death as a criminal. He seems to be drawing on something. And then later on, he says, and people seem to be disturbed by this. You can see him coming in and out. But he's using sources, obviously. Now, does that prove anything? Of course not to anyone. Yes, I mean, you could really just have direct proof. Would, that, would the whole world believe now? But is it interesting that somebody else, besides the Bible, mentions it? Yeah. The question is why the others don't quote him. But then again, stuff was not widely disseminated. We kind of assume when we find something, uh, well, for instance, I, I, when I studied the poet Keats in romantic, my class in romantic poetry, you know, he's considered one of the most influential poets to have lived. And I asked, well, how many people would have read Keats in his lifetime? And he said, oh, 500. <laughs> I'm like, really? <laughs> the truth is that, you know, uh, women writers were much widely more widely read than male writers. Um, so people that we consider great writers of the past. So we don't know how many people read these things. What's even more depressing, we don't know how anyone reacted to these letters. Wouldn't it be nice to have a, you know, a letter back? Yes, we've done what you said, Peter. You know, and uh, we're doing well. We don't have any of those letters. That would be fascinating, wouldn't it? It's so long ago. Do you ever have those time travel kind of things? Like if I could go back grab a few copies. <laughs> Just a couple housekeeping reminders. Next week we begin a four-week series on the culture of poverty. Our leader will be Nancy Varian of Malone University, and she is a local or national recognized expert on this topic. Uh, Betty Meyer has been instrumental in facilitating uh, Nancy coming to, to lead our class, and if I had to gauge the success of, of Nancy's message to us or the appeal on Betty Meyer's enthusiasm, I would say we're in for something remarkable uh, for the next four weeks. Now, we've had a pretty remarkable most of January here with Dr. Lloyd. And he will be back as soon as we figure out which Sunday in April <laughs> it's going to be to reprise, uh, reprise, whichever way we want to Part pronounce four that of this word. Part this series. This, this series, and uh, we'll look forward to that as well. 
Thank you, Dr. Lloyd, for a, a wonderful three weeks. You're welcome. Thanks.